Welcome to the House of Mourning. Hey there, I'm your host, Joelle Coteau Willard, and this podcast is a space where my guests and I explore the raw, unfiltered truths and inner knowings we tap into in grief and in life after loss and trauma. We reject societal norms that condition us into bypassing and fast forwarding through the work of healing. My personal desire to normalize grief is the result of my own healing journey, having lost my father at the age of 33, and most recently the death of my second son late term in pregnancy. For those of you that find yourself in grief, recalibrating after loss or healing from trauma, I honor you. Perhaps you are here because you are navigating supporting a loved one who is grieving or on a healing journey. If so, way to show up for yourself and them. Wherever you are on the journey, all of you is welcome here. Hey everyone. All right. On today's episode, we have a very powerful and impactful one for you. We have Jessica Van Wine on our podcast today, who is chiming in from Pennsylvania State, where she lives with her husband, Justin, and their two mischievous pups. Following a late-term pregnancy loss in April 2021, Jessica found a passion for providing support and community to other lost parents. She's a support group facilitator for the organization Return to Zero Hope, based out of California. She is currently collaborating to create a new support group with them for birthing people who find themselves unable to have children due to circumstances beyond their control. Jessica honors the son she lost by sharing his story transparently and publicly, and I would add, oh, so bravely. This is a story of TFMR. This is a story of pregnancy and infant loss. This is a story of childless not by choice, and all of that together in one beautifully, beautifully, and bravely expressed story. Here we go. Welcome to the podcast, Jessica Van Wyen. Hello, Joelle. I'm so glad to be here. I know that you and I met in basically with our work and the work that you were doing. I was one of your participants, for lack of a better word in a support group with an organization. I hope you can tell us a little bit more about later on, but yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'd love to hear and have our listeners hear about your grief and loss journey. Anything you're willing to share with us? Oh, where do I begin? (laughs) It's been a lot. Um, so I think that my, journey begins with probably my diagnosis of infertility. My husband and I got married in 2014, the end of 2014. And we, about a year into our marriage, decided to try and start conceiving children. And after about a year, I was 30, almost 33 at that point. Um, We hadn't had any luck. So we went into a specialist office that we had been referred to and they gave us a whole list of tests that needed to be run. And at the time, I didn't have insurance coverage for it. And here in the U.S., that's a big deal. <laughs> and so we decided to start with the cheapest test, which was for my husband to check his fertility. And we discovered in that one test that he had male factor infertility. And due to his low sperm count, um, the only way that we could conceive a biological child was through IVF. It was impossible for us to conceive naturally. So while I had been bracing myself for a long journey of Clomid and medications and maybe IUIs, we skipped all of that and went straight to IVF. And so that was a lot for us to wrap our minds around. Um, The next few years consisted of saving money, of meeting specialists, of um, getting insurance coverage, which was an amazing blessing, and mentally and physically preparing for IVF so that we could have children. So I had an egg retrieval and we got four embryos out of it. 
we transferred two of the embryos to separate transfers and neither one of them worked, which was tough. And there was a lot of grieving involved in the loss of what I had imagined my journey to motherhood would be. Uh, little things like being able to take a surprise pregnancy test, like that a moment that you imagine. I wasn't going to get to have that moment because everything was so timed and clinical. Um, but it's okay. I told myself that it was all going to be worth it when we crossed the finish line and got our healthy child that we would get to raise children, hopefully. So after the second egg or, or egg transfer, embryo transfer didn't work. It was rough and I needed a year off to take care of my mental health. And so I listened to the signals that my body was sending me and I took that time to really gather myself and recover. And then we decided instead of moving on to the two embryos that we had left to do a second egg retrieval. And so we did that and we transferred the best embryo from that batch. And on the third transfer, it worked. And I finally got that moment that I had been dreaming of for years of the two bright lines on the pregnancy test. And we were overjoyed. And the story that I had been telling myself over the last few years to get to this point was true. All the, the injections and the doctor's appointments and the tears and the yearning and the hardships were going to be worth it. And so we were pregnant. We were thrilled. Um, I was closely monitored during my pregnancy because at this point in time, I was 36 years old, um, about to be 37. And so that's considered an older pregnancy. And then I had conceived with IVF. And so because of that, I saw an OB and then I also was referred to a maternal fetal medicine specialist. Mm. So Despite my pregnancy not having complications, any known complications, I was monitored very closely. And so every two weeks I was seeing one of the two doctors and I got to have extra visits to hear the baby's heartbeat. Um, we did some testing, some blood work to check for standard chromosomal abnormalities. It's getting to be more standard in pregnancies now. That came yeah. back clear. Um, but I found out that we were having a boy, which I was so excited about. I'm the oldest of five girls. So I just took it for granted that we would bring another girl into the world. Um, but, <laughs> but it was a boy and I couldn't believe it. And my husband and I were so excited and thrilled. And so immediately when you, you start picturing a future with this child anyway, but then when you find out the gender, it's like really solidified the vision of your future. And um, so I kept going to doctor's appointments. Things kept going really well. His heartbeat was strong. His ultrasounds were normal up through the anatomy scan at 20 weeks. Um, everything was great during that scan, except that they couldn't get a couple of images at the end of the scan that they needed to get. Um, and so I was a little concerned when they were trying and trying to get those last pictures and they couldn't get them. But the MFM specialist came into the room and reassured us this happens all the time. It's normal. We saw enough that the baby looks great. He's right where he should be size wise. And all of the, the markers are there that this is a healthy pregnancy. So at that point, we all systems were go. We had the finish line in front of us. This journey had been worth it. Um, and all of the anxiety that I had, I let myself put it aside because I hadn't experienced any like miscarriages up to that point. I had had the, the missed em or the failed embryo transfers. But when you're in the IVF and infertility world, you encounter a lot of loss. There's a lot of stories about miscarriages and loss and then just getting older and having mothers as friends who experience those things. I was very aware that those were possibilities. And so I had really guarded my heart through the pregnancy. But as far as I knew, that 20 week scan was clear. So all systems were go. So then I really let myself celebrate. We painted the nursery. We bought a crib and a stroller. I started buying clothes. We planned our shower. I was getting my registry all put together and we were so excited. And then at the 24 weeks checkup, 
um, we came back because with the MFM, it's standard to do an echocardiogram of the baby's heart, a detailed echocardiogram. So I went back at 24 weeks. They checked his heart out. Everything was fine. And then they decided, while you're here, we'll get the last couple images that we couldn't get clear views of last time. It was at that point in time that they discovered um, a pretty serious abnormality in our baby's brain, which we were not expecting. <laughs> like I said, I had let all of the anxiety go. And in a split second, my world was just changed forever. And I could not wrap my head around. I had envisioned this, that we were on this path towards a very specific goal. And I could picture the goal in front of us with the ribbon ready for me to walk across. And all of a sudden, like when that was in sight, it was ripped away. And so um, we went a week later to a specialty hospital here, the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, which is one of the best in the the U.S., um, for fetal diagnoses. And we had some pretty intense testing, including a fetal MRI that confirmed our fears. And there were actually several abnormalities in our baby's brain, um, more so than we could see just on the ultrasound the week before. And so when we sat with the doctors that day with the specialist at the end of the day, they painted a picture of what our son's life would look like if we carried him to turn and if he lived. And it was the hardest conversation I've ever been a part of. Um, they described a reality filled with pain, filled with serious medical interventions, filled with seizures that couldn't be controlled with medication. Um, and in order to reduce his symptoms and give him the best quality of life possible, it would require five or six specialist visits a week. Um, the resources that we needed here in my hometown weren't available. And so in order to really give him the care that he would need, we would need to take him to doctor's appointments an hour away. And again, it would be five or six appointments a week. My husband doesn't drive. Um, he uses a manual wheelchair. He has cerebral palsy. And so what that would mean is that all of that would fall to me, making sure that our son got what he would need and still not be able to live a full pain-free life. Um, and so while I had imagined um, the possibility of a miscarriage or of losing my baby, which would be devastating in and of itself, even the possibility of stillbirth, like I used to in picturing worst case scenarios, um, picture that possibility and feel so crushed and devastated just by imagining it. And now I was faced with this thing that I had never even begun to prepare myself for where um, we could continue the pregnancy and see what happened. We didn't go in and there was no heartbeat or he was delivered and he had already passed and there was nothing that we could do. We were placed in a position where we as his parents had to decide whether it was best for him to continue down that path or if we thought that it would be better as his parents and for our family to make the decision to interrupt the pregnancy and grant him peace. And so obviously um, that decision was very difficult and my husband and I really agonized over it. We wanted our son. We loved him already. We had already um, carved out a place in our life for him and our family. And I had pictured an entire life for him. And I had sacrificed so much physically, financially, and emotionally to have him. And I loved him already. There was a very strong connection with this baby that I could feel kicking in my belly. But ultimately we decided that for him and for our family it wasn't the right choice to let him go to full term and to just see what happened there was too great of risk that his life would be full of suffering and um and of hardship and we just weren't willing to submit him to that so we decided to terminate the pregnancy 
which again felt so cruel. And I don't know that it's more devastating than other types of pregnancy loss. Like losing a child is devastating always, but it felt especially cruel to me to have sacrificed and worked so hard. I felt like I had earned my happy ending. And now not only was I not like getting my happy ending, but I was having to be an active participant in not getting that happy ending, <laughs> which was awful. It just, like yeah. I said, it felt so cruel. It felt so cruel. Um, but despite that, I knew that it was the right decision. Um, there was something inside of me, my inner compass and um, my husband's as well. And luckily we were on the same page and we were united mm -hmm. and we felt very strongly that this was the best choice of granting peace to our son and sparing him a life of suffering and of pain. And so we decided to move forward in that decision. And so a week later, we traveled outside of our state. Um, in the state that we were in, there was a 24-week limit um, for terminations of pregnancy. And so we had to travel. To my knowledge, there's only, at the time, there were only three or four clinics in the U.S. that would do a procedure that late in pregnancy. Incredible. Luckily for us, two of them were within about a two and a half hour driving distance. And so we traveled to Washington, D.C., just over two hours away. Um, I had the procedure in an outpatient clinic, which was really difficult. Um, it was, like I said, my first pregnancy. I was very far along in the pregnancy. I would have felt much more comfortable being in a hospital under 24-hour care. Yes. But it just wasn't an option for me. And so we were in an outpatient clinic for a three-day process. And I did experience labor um, as part of the procedure. They give you medications that put your body into labor. And so I experienced a full day of, you know, the pelvic pressure and the cramping and the pain and the discomfort of labor, which I... Um, looking back, I'm actually grateful to have had that experience. It feels like a connection to motherhood and to Jacob um, that I am glad that I experienced. Um, but obviously, it was difficult to go through in the moment. Um, we opted to view our baby's remains and to hold him and to see him and spend time with his body after the procedure. And uh, I wasn't sure if that was going to be an option. You hear a lot of um, mistruths and propaganda about these types of procedures this far along in pregnancy, but I was able to get reassurance that his body would be treated with respect and that he would arrive intact. And so I labored and then we had a surgical procedure, a DNE. I was unconscious for it. Um, and he was removed. And then, um, my husband and I were able to a little while later spend time with him. So I did get to have the moment that I had dreamed of my whole life. Uh, I had been imagining my entire life the first time holding my own baby. Um, I had held many babies in my life because I'm the oldest of five and because I grew up in a community with a lot of large families. And so I babysat and been around cousins and sisters and friends my whole life. And so I loved holding newborn babies, especially, you know, fresh out of the womb and the softness of their little skin and their downy cheeks and their little tiny fingers. And so I had pictured that moment um, and I had been really scared that I wasn't going to get to have it. And we were very lucky that I was able to. Um, obviously, it was very different and under very different circumstances than what I had imagined. But um, we did get to hold him. He was two pounds. He was bigger than I thought he was going to be that far along. Um, he looked just like my husband, which was really comforting. You always wonder, like, what will our children look like? What do our genes look like mixed together? Um, we named him Jacob Thomas. And we got to spend a few hours with him there in the clinic. And I have to say that I was very surprised by the experience of being with him. I had, again, before, like when I had pictured what it would be like to lose a pregnancy and to lose a child, especially that far along, I pictured myself like 
wailing that it would be like a big, ugly, loud sadness. And I was kind of prepared for that. Um, and when they brought him in, I felt like I was in a cocoon. I felt there was a lot of light. It was a very sacred space that we were able to share with our son. And I got to hold him in the crook of my arm and I got to touch his soft downy skin and give him kisses. And I got to sing him a lullaby and dance with him. And it was really beautiful um, to get to have that time with him. And I'm so grateful for it. I know not everybody gets that opportunity. And so I never take it for granted. So we lost our son, which was devastating. Um, We did decide that we wanted to keep trying. We had at that point several embryos left. And so after some time had passed and I had physically healed um, from having Jacob um, and had started the grieving process and felt like I was in an okay place we started transferring embryos again and we had three more failed embryo transfers. So at that point we decided that we wanted to test the remaining embryos. There were five embryos left. We had frozen them, but we had not had them genetically tested. So we had them thawed and biopsied and one of them didn't survive the thaw. And so we were down to four. Of the four that got tested, three were abnormal. They had chromosomal abnormalities that were incompatible with life. And so we had one shot left. And I had talked to my husband about, at this point, we had been on our fertility journey for almost seven years. My husband expressed to me that he was done at this point. He said, if it were up to me, I would make peace with our reality and be be done. And he said, but I respect you and what you want. And I'm in it with you as long as you need me to be. Mm-hmm. And so, which I was grateful for. Um, and so I thought that I would want to try again if this last embryo transfer didn't work. So we transferred the embryo. It did work. Um, in that I got a positive pregnancy test and my HCG levels were rising. However, when we went to the initial scan to check, to measure the size of the sac and the fetal pole, um, there was a sac there, but there was no, um, nothing inside of it. It's what they call blighted ovum. And so I knew that it had not worked. And so then I spent the next two weeks bracing myself to miscarry the pregnancy. And So that experience was obviously very different than the experience of losing Jacob, but in some ways it was actually um, harder on me. Um, Looking back, I think the reason for that is that I had experienced so much trauma with Jacob. Um, My body and my mind went into overdrive with trauma response to protect me from this pain that I had previously endured. And so the trauma responses actually made it much more difficult for me to cope. And so the miscarriage was emotionally devastating. And I experienced trauma responses that I had never experienced before. And my body and mind were sending me very clear signals that I needed to be done and that I had endured enough and that. At this point, there was just too much harm done and that I don't know how much more I could survive. And so what that meant was coming to peace with deciding not to pursue any more fertility treatments. Um, And at that point, we also decided that other um, alternative ways of growing our family were also just not right for us for various reasons. And so we shut the door on that chapter. And so this all happened a few months ago. And so where I am currently is I'm getting ready to turn 40 here in a few months. And I feel at peace that we tried everything that we could and pushed ourselves to the point where it was healthy. Um, And before it became too unhealthy, we decided to stop. And so we are now looking at a future of um, the terminology I've learned is childless, childless, not by choice. So um, we're going to have a childless future. 
um, with living children. Obviously, I still consider Jacob my son. Um, so that's my my story of loss from beginning to end. It's been a rough ride, but somehow I came out on the other end and here I am. <laughs> oh, wow. Thank you, Jess. Like, thank you so much for sharing your journey and sharing Jacob with us and sharing your current new life chapter as hard and traumatic and grief filled. And also, I don't want to say joy filled. However, you know, when I think of this journey as unique Mm -hmm. as it is to every single person in the pregnancy and infant loss community or infertility community or however you self-identify right like childless not by choice I mean there's a lot of overlap for so many of us yes um I'm just also so aware of the paradox that we can live which is so hard to explain yes people who have not experienced such deep devastation and yet yeah you know like when I met my son Julian and he died at 23 weeks mm-hmm. yeah so and he was um he wasn't two pounds like Jacob obviously I think gestationally yeah um, how many weeks was Jacob 26 and that's a lot of time in pregnancy so the three yeah. weeks make a difference totally and so you know Julian was like one pound I I want to say 12 ounces I would have to check mm. his little certificate um yeah. however it, that moment was the second most painful moment of my life. Yeah. And also one of the most beautiful moments of my life. Yes. And, you know, so I'm just aware of that. Like I think so many outsiders of the community that don't know pregnancy or infant loss or infertility or, and and I can't speak for infertility. So I I shouldn't Mm -hmm. even include that in what I'm saying because I, have no experience with that um or just hasn't been a part of my journey um is it's not just this you know oh just you know sob story of oh poor us and you know all these things like there's joy in it too but it's Mm -hmm. not like I I'm mindful of how I talk about that because then I don't want to enter into the like toxic positivity world. I know. Yeah. That's why I feel very strange in thinking about and reflecting on my whole journey and my story and my loss in using words like thankful or grateful. It feels um, very strange to even have those sentiments surrounding such a painful, life-changing, devastating loss. And, but that doesn't negate the fact that they're true, that I do experience moments of gratitude and of being thankful. And you're right. There were so many moments of joy and sweetness. I just see in my mind's eye, a giant bold A and D the and of grieving and of the grief experience. Um, But it was surprising to me to experience that. I didn't realize how, those things that seem mutually exclusive could actually coexist in the same space and be so interwoven with each other. Wow. I have worked with that word in my career. We call it having an and conversation Mm -hmm. living, you know, and so I've never thought of it in terms of grief Mm -hmm. and so I'm curious you know if you can tell me more about that I'm really like what does that A-N-D signify to you yeah I mean you mentioned toxic positivity and I do think that that is a good call out for I think that especially people the loved ones in our lives that are watching us experience this grief, they have such a a desire to lessen our pain and to lessen their own discomfort around our pain. And so 
their intent isn't to minimize what we went through, but we all know the stereotypical anything that begins with an at least or um, the sentiment that, you know, your baby was too perfect for this world or that everything happens for a reason. And those are not a part of the and. Like, and doesn't minimize the darkness. Um, I think that this experience is, I, I remember in the early days of my grieving after we had gotten Jacob's diagnosis and we're preparing to lose him. And then in the first days after, I remember this distinct feeling of darkness. It was the darkest, most monotonous, heaviest sadness that I had ever experienced in my life. There was not any like dissonance in it. It was just dark and heavy. Um, But on the flip side of that, loving Jacob is the lightest and sweetest and most pure white I've ever experienced. And so the and for me is where those two things meet. And so sentiments of wanting to emphasize or to bring lessons and light into this experience that diminish or ignore the darkness is not healthy and it's not true to the experience. This experience is equally the dark and the light. And for me, the lightness is sweeter in some ways because of how dark the dark actually was. And it's all Jacob's story and it's all my story. And so by focusing only on the at least and the trying to do that doesn't honor him and his story. Um, And it doesn't honor me and my experience. And so being able to recognize and honor and bear witness to both, even though the grief is painful and it is uncomfortable, it is part of the story and it deserves to be recognized and honored and treated with as much respect as the moments of sweetness and love and joy that can also be found in that story. Does that make sense? Oh, it, it makes so much sense. And you bring up some really important words, important distinctions, important, really, really important points. And it's kind of the central focus of this podcast because yeah. my come from is with respect to embodied wisdom from grief, loss, and trauma. Yeah. My come from is not, oh, you know, how am I a better person because my son died? Right. Oh, what are the life lessons? You know, what are the yeah, lessons? Right. You know, like it's, it's, all of that, you know, is, is like, it kind of, to me, communicates, oh, it'll all, you know, nobody will really say this, but it's like this underlying current of, well, you know, it'll somehow be worth it some day that right. you locked your son, that he's dead, that you had, you know, that you went, yes. like, It's just like, well, and that was what was so different between the grief experience that I had with infertility and IVF versus experiencing a death is that that was a way that I got through that experience and the grief involved in infertility is I was working for a very specific goal. And I did tell myself when you have your live baby in your arms and you're getting to raise them, then this will all be worth it. And that was true for me. And I just remember feeling so lost and sad when I realized like, oh, with this death, I'm scarred forever. There is no lesson or outcome that will take this away. I have been changed in a way that can never be undone. And it was a really different experience. And people are uncomfortable with that. People want happy endings to stories, which is okay. I understand why, but it just doesn't reflect the reality of life and of death. No. And you know what? When you talk about, and this is the, this is what is so hard to communicate. So I'm coming from in my career 
working in the realm of personal development, of transformation, of transformational experiences where people dive into themselves and they change their careers and they, you know, they do all these amazing things that they've always wanted to do, which is so beautiful. And I've worked around this concept of transformation. What is true transformation? And supporting people in moving in their path, their, their, you know, purpose, whatever. Yeah. And when I think truly about my experience of Julian dying, mm-hmm. of, you know, meeting him. Yeah. Basically, like, his body, yeah. you know, he was gone. Yes. When I gave birth to him, you know, the similarity is there's a lot of similarities in our stories in many ways. And, um, you know, it's like who I be, who I have become and who I was before and who I am redis, who I am discovering. I've had to not because I, I lost myself. Mm -hmm. That version of me died is the best way I can say it. Yes. And I have, that experience has completely transformed me into a version of myself that it is literally a impossible to revert back to and B I wouldn't want to. Right. And, and so for me, it's like, I want to talk a lot more openly about grief as transformation. And it's so risky because People want it to mean this toxic positivity shit, yeah, right. language, where that's not where I'm going with it. No. I'm not it's bad. No. It's not good or bad, but it's like, I, it, that's what I want. I want people to get is like, yeah. you're never going to live life the same. Let's say your husband died no. or your child died or yes. whatever your flavor of actual reality in life yeah right right what that you know most of us face right some people don't until they die right however um that it's it is transformation and there is so much beauty in it but it's not in this like happy ending way it's it's right well and also describing it as in that way of like well this was meant to be or this happened for a reason it makes it feel passive instead of being able to feel empowered to make intentional choices about your this path that you're on has crumbled it no longer exists you can't move forward on the same path but you still have to move forward and you get to with intention build that path forward and so i just don't like the idea of it's insulting to me to think that well your baby had to die for you to become this person when i think no my baby died and i'm choosing what meaning i want to build out of that and i'm you know surrendering to it but also moving forward in intention and i i claim that power um i don't i don't give credit to the universe i give credit to me for how i i choose to build meaning and and build a new life after like you said the death of the old one yes and don't put your meaning don't put society's meaning don't put no stereo whatever cliche Mm -hmm. crap that does not apply like maybe especially because then that also brings judgment on whichever path somebody chooses if you decide for them what that's supposed to mean then there's ways for them to do it wrong and that's just not how this works like whatever you need to do to survive a loss this devastating and put the pieces of yourself back together is what you needed to do for yourself. And so by society putting these expectations that when something bad happens, you have to transform it into this big, meaningful, world-changing thing, then people feel like they're doing it wrong. And that's so unfair. Like sometimes surviving it is the victory. So yeah, 
letting other people put that on you can make you feel like you're doing it wrong. And that's terrible. (laughs) Nobody should feel that way. But how many people who actually experience soul shaking, life shaking, grief and loss, Mm -hmm. because they're actually experiencing grief, Mm -hmm. believe they're doing it wrong because society would prefer them not to live their grief, their truth, their Right. Right. Because there's a misconception that grief uh, needs to be cured, that grief is like a disease that if you take the right medication and do the right steps, it'll resolve. (laughs) And that's not what it because that's what would make people more comfortable because grief is ugly and it is hard and it is heavy and it's complicated And so that makes people who haven't experienced it very uncomfortable. And I think that when you imagine yourself in that position, it's, it's almost impossible to imagine what it means to really be changed forever and the way that grief changes you. And so it's easier to think that you can go through the five stages of grief and then it resolves and goes away and dissipates. And that's just not the reality of what grief is. And it does people a disservice to believe that's what's going to happen because then everybody, you can't escape life without grief. Everybody is going to experience grief in sometimes many ways, um, but some way Um, we're not immortal. We're going to lose people close to us. We're going to suffer terrible losses. And so if you go into something like that with the expectation that there's a, set of steps. And if you just take those steps, then your grief will be cured and you get to return to life as you knew it. You're doing yourself such a disservice. And you think that you're doing it wrong because you're taking all these steps and then you're looking back and you're like, but I'm still not the person that I was before. And the grief is still with me. What am I doing wrong? (laughs) Why can't I cure it? And that's not the goal. It shouldn't be the goal because it's impossible. And it's treated though, like what you're saying about, it's like, if it needs a cure, then it must be an illness. Yes. If I'm sick, then when am I going to get better? Yes. And it's like, we want, we put this pressure on people who've gone through trauma, gone through tragedy, who've Mm -hmm. gone through deeply, deeply traumatic things, losses and what have you to just like, hurry up and get better already. So I can feel better when I think of you. Yes. You know what I mean? Like, or, or just lie to me. Yes. Yeah. Because it's uncomfortable and it's sad to watch somebody in some ways it's almost, I don't want to say harder, but it is difficult to watch somebody you love experiencing something really devastating because you do want to be able so badly to lift their burden somehow. And so to realize that you can't do it for somebody that you love is really difficult. And so in that way, it would be easier on the loved ones in our lives if we could cure our grief because our grief does impact them, you know, not obviously not nearly to the extent that it impacts us, but it doesn't. Some people are selfish and that feeling of like, I need you to get better because I'm uncomfortable does some stem from a selfish place, but other people, it's not coming from a selfish place. It truly is coming from a place of, they don't want to see us in pain because they love us. But Mm -hmm. either way, whether it's selfish or not, the end result is the same. If you push your expectations of curing grief on us, it's not fair to us to do that. No, and it, it is a complete, like, I think this was one of my biggest shocks when Julian died leading up to his death mm-hmm. in the immediate months after. And now I'm, I'm one year almost to the month behind you, right? Like mm-hmm. you just went through the second anniversary. I did. Yeah. I don't know if I said so, that. We are, we lost Jacob in April of 2021. Yeah. Right. And we lost Julian in May of 2022 yeah. and um, you know, it's just so it was so mind blowing, shocking to me mm-hmm. to have experienced prior to Julian's death, my father's death, mm-hmm. which was sudden. And when I was 33 and that was hard. Yeah. And that was, I mean, that was, that's a whole other conversation. Yeah. However, 
it did not shake me and break me open. I don't believe that. I don't believe in brokenness. I don't believe it broke me. Yeah. I believe it broke me open and yes. like, I I like shattered that. into pieces. However, when I was really like, I was not like, I had to stop. Like I just stopped everything. Like I was just like, you know what we're not going to do? All of the things we're doing. None of them. Yeah. Right. Like, that's just a no. Everything is a no. I'm out. Peace. Don't ring my doorbell. Yeah. I, I won't be there. Yeah. You know, but it shocked me to understand to what degree people, like when their skill levels with being faced with a friend or mm-hmm. I was a leader in my community and, you know, all these things to be faced with this reality. Yeah. But they had zero coping mechanisms. They had zero connection. Mecha- they had, yeah. there was no language. It's like I started yeah. speaking Mandarin. Right. Yeah. And they just spoke French. Yeah. And, it was and at best it's clumsy and at worst it's hurtful and harmful. Yeah. That's really that, difficult. That has been until now. I'm only one year in. Mm-hmm. That is still shocking to me. How, yeah. you know, like what, what have you found to be the hardest thing to, I guess, the, the most jolting aspect of being in grief, being in mourning, having experienced both? Because they are, I love how you spoke to that, right? Mm-hmm. Like, infertility and and then also like witnessing your son Jacob's death you know mm-hmm. it's not same same it's yeah. one umbrella but yeah, like right what would you say has been the hardest experience to to grapple with for you and and I don't mean the actual events I mean like yeah right of 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 relating or not being carried or dropped yeah you know, by right. the world Well, I always, as a general rule, my coping mechanism always has been to talk about the hard things and what I'm going through. And that has served me well in my life. I have been very lucky to have always had some semblance of community around me of people who were willing to listen to me and to validate me. Um, And so I did get to experience that, but I will say that there there was a loneliness and there was a clumsiness and a hesitance on my part about the termination aspect of the loss. That was really difficult for me because my instinct was to share openly, but there was so much fear. And so while I was grappling with my grief, I couldn't turn to my normal coping mechanism because I was terrified of the stigma and the judgment and that people would accuse me of being a terrible mother or not being a mother, that they would say that I didn't deserve to grieve the loss of my son, that I, to question my love for him to, I just was so terrified of that. And so the loneliness that I felt because I could not be completely authentic and transparent. I didn't feel safe in that was so hard for me. I had never felt so alone, never. Um, And also what was really difficult, you know, it's interesting because I actually had braced myself for people to say clumsy things to me. And there were Mm -hmm. people that, you know, oh, your son was too perfect for this earth. Like I... I'm sure that that's those words seem like they should be comforting, but they're not. Um, so, but really the angriest that I got at anybody was not even directed towards me. I got so angry because on social media, there's an old childhood family friend whose daughter was going through something very difficult. And um, it was some health issues that involved needing some pretty serious surgeries. And there was a lot of fear. And this mother, who was an old friend of our families, had shared very openly. And she had been asking for prayers for her daughter, which is great. Um, and the commu- her community really rallied around her. And so I was watching all of this unfold. And there was a particular moment in time where something um they were really fearing a certain outcome and the doctors were telling them to brace themselves for this, this bad outcome. And seemingly miraculously, their daughter had this amazing turnaround and she um, 
was able to progress beautifully. And she, like I said, it was a happy ending, which was great. I was happy for her, obviously. But I was so angry as I scrolled through the comments on social media and people were saying things like, oh, God knew just how much you could take. And when it got too heavy, he took it away. And look at the power of prayers and the power of positivity. And I was so mad that people would dare to say that. And I think that what it is, is that everybody was leaning into the happy ending and everybody wants to feel like they have control or they want to feel like the worst can't happen and that you will be, you will be pushed to the edge, but you'll be spared before it gets too hard to bear. And that is not true. You know, I was like mad thinking about, I was raised in a Christian belief system where there's a the very popular story of God asking Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. And at the last moment, he was spared from having to do that. Mm-hmm. And I was as I was watching this happen and these people saying this, I was like, but what about those of us that did have to make the sacrifice? Mm-hmm. No angel came to save me. And so it was insulting for me that these people thought that this little girl and her mother were like worthy of being spared of pain and that they had something to do with it. I can't really express like, obviously they're well-intentioned and it felt strange to be mad at them for that. And I was not mad about the happy outcome of this little girl. I was so relieved for her and her, for her mom. Yes, but that course. sentiment made me so mad. <laughs> I was furious. So that was a difficult part. That's been a difficult part of grief is that people are unwilling to truly recognize the depth of the pain. And going back to the sentiment of and, this is actually a lesson that you helped me learn. You know, for the, especially the first year after the loss, I had a lot of keepsakes. I had, um, I had taken pregnancy pictures. There's one here behind me. I had taken handprints and footprints. I had... You know, I um, had his ultrasound pictures. I had the outfit that we had that I used to tell my husband we were having a boy. But I had tucked those keepsakes away because it felt like I would be um, subjecting myself to pain to bring them out. It would just be a reminder of the loss. And so for the first year, the grief was just the pain. And it was such a hesitance to sit in the grief because of how uncomfortable and painful it was. And you actually, in one of our interactions, had talked about a little montage that you had put together of the joyful moments in your pregnancy with Julian. And that was so helpful to me and inspirational for me. And I actually that night took out the keepsakes and sat with them. And I put together my own montage of the joyful moments of announcing his pregnancy and finding out he was a boy and all of those things. And the pain was just as painful as I was afraid it was going to be. It was hard. It's hard to look at what I lost and that I wasn't spared the pain. I was pushed past the point of what I should have had to bear but I had to go there in order to really appreciate the sweetness and the joy of all of it. And so people are robbing us of that when they try and like take away the, the truth of the grief. They are, if they do that, then we are missing out. You have to sit in the grief and step into the darkness before you can also experience that sweetness because in grief, they're entangled. You can't experience one without the other. And so you have to wait into the darkness to experience the light. And so I was so grateful to have come across you and other lost moms that understood that reality and helped me be brave enough to really get there because people who haven't experienced it don't understand that. And they don't realize that by trying to like write these happy stories and ignore the grief and force us to heal from it, they are also depriving us of our full story and of the love and the joy that is in it. That was a really long answer to your question. <laughs> it was so beautiful. They, they are not seeing us. Yeah. In doing yes. so. 
And grief needs to be witnessed. Our stories need to be witnessed. Julian deserves to be witnessed. Jacob deserves to be witnessed because they existed and they are real and they continue to have impact on the world through us. And by trying to cure us of our grief, they are ignoring our children. And I don't want that. Jacob deserves to be seen. I I completely feel the same way. And it's the, you know, whenever you talk about, you're talking about the light and the dark, like it's what I talk about in that is, that is the wisdom mm. that we don't ask for, we didn't want, and we're yeah. not happy we have. No. Yet it's no, I would choose every day of the week to have a little two-year-old curly haired toddler running around here healthy and happy. Of course I would choose that, but it's not our reality. Yeah. And it's what we can what it's what we can connect with mm-hmm. as wisdom as a result of living through this is really being able to see, feel, to be connected, to know the reality of that yeah. light and the dark fitting together the yes. yin and the yang. Yes. And one of my favorite quotes is, and this, it does apply to grief. I don't know what it doesn't apply to, to be honest, but it's, you know, the only way out is through. Yes. And so I'm yeah, so. But everything in you resists taking that step through because you're mm-hmm. asking yourself to step into fire, like knowing that you're going to get burned there, but you're right. You, there's just no, otherwise you're stagnant. And a life without growth isn't what I want. No, no, no. And I just wrote a post about have I I I did a fire walking ceremony Mm. and I literally walked on fire. Like I don't know, it was twenty sixteen. Yeah, it was. It was it was a thing. It was a you know, there's a whole other conversation. However, there is truly like it is a it is walking on fire and you know what I just watched um, the light we carry on Netflix with oh. Oprah and Michelle Obama yes. and we talked about friends who had to pull back mm-hmm. on the climb of life because the air got you know as they were going I can't remember the exact verb- verbiage but it was like I ran they ran out of oxygen yes right. Like they couldn't breathe. And that's been a big experience for me too. Mm. Is friends just like not knowing how to be with me as in in the fire. Right. Right. So, so I want to know before we officially close out, because I wish we never had to close out. I know. I know. You and I are a dangerous combination. We'll talk forever. I'm I'm wondering if you can tell us about your work with one of my like oh my god my love for Return to Zero Hope is off the charts. It's how we met. Yes. You were my facilitator in a support oh, group. I know I'm so grateful and for that. Talk to us. Can you talk to us about Return to Zero Hope about your work and sure. how you have incorporated Jacob into your life? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, like I said before. I was really struggling in the early days of my grief because I didn't feel safe yet being open about the termination aspect of our loss. And it was really crippling to me um, in my grieving experience. I needed to be able to be open and authentic. And so I started searching. I didn't even have the right terminology. I knew abortion, but abortion didn't feel right because that word is so loaded right now in our political climate. And, um, and so I didn't feel connected to it. I didn't. And so I was, I was searching online and I started searching for like, like ending a pregnancy that you wanted. And that brought me to ending a wanted pregnancy, which brought me to termination for medical reasons. And so I was able to finally get the language that I needed for my loss. Um, and so in my searching, I found this website, Return to Zero Hope, and it's this incredible organization that was started by a woman who had a stillborn son many years ago. And in her grief journey, she just decided, and she's right, that especially then there weren't enough resources for community and for a place where people can come together and sit in their grief and have it 
borne witness to instead of being downplayed and needing to be cured. And so she started these in-person retreats and then COVID came along and they weren't able to do those. And so they began um, an online support community and that evolved into all of these support groups. They're unique support groups in that it's not like a drop-in. It's a, you sign up for six to 10 weeks with a specific group of people and you are with them and you talk about um, various aspects of grief and you receive education while also building community. So this was single-handedly the best thing that I did for myself in my grieving process. I was no longer alone. I was connecting with women, which for me, there's something very special and sacred about the power of a um, strong, positive relationship with other women. Um, and I was able to speak authentically and openly about Jacob's loss, including the termination. So it was so vital. I loved it so much, my experience, and I felt called. It awakened a passion in me to be able to offer that same support and community to others who came behind me. Um, and so, and for all lost moms and lost parents, because it's devastating and there's so much overlap for any pregnancy loss. And so I reached out to the leaders in the organization and expressed my interest. And luckily for me, despite my lack of like a counseling or therapy degree, they embraced me with open arms and they provided training for me. And I have now been a facilitator for this organization for over a year. And so I am a facilitator for RTZ Hope. Um, I facilitated a few different types of groups, but my preference is to facilitate support groups for those who have ended wanted pregnancies. Um, and then right now I'm developing a new curriculum for a new support group for those who are childless, not by choice, um, who wanted children who imagined a life with children and due to circumstances beyond their control, they are at the crossroads of life where they are accepting that they are not going to have and raise children and being able to process that experience and that grief. And then also reimagine a future that is still full and whole. And so that's where my passion is right now is it helps me in my continued grief journey because my grief is not cured. Uh, my grief is part of me. My grief is the reminder that um, that Jacob existed and that he was real. And so my passion is in um, building community and help for um, others who come behind me. And Jacob is with me every step of the way. Um, you know, doing these groups is in some ways self-serving because I get to talk about Jacob on a regular basis um, with other people who understand the nuances of what it means to talk about a child that you've lost. Um, and I've also come to a place where I am comfortable with my grief and I get to have Jacob with me all the time um, because of that. And I'm so grateful for it. I see him every day in, out in nature. I feel his presence. I I feel like I'm honoring him um, in the choices that I'm making as I walk this life path. And I am so grateful to be his mother. I wanted to be a mother my whole life. It was the only thing that I really dreamed of. And it didn't come to fruition the way that I wanted. But Oh, I love him so much. And I'm so grateful for him. The, the first thing that I said when I saw him, when I uncovered his little body, um, it was an involuntary reflex to say, thank you for making my dreams come true. Jacob made my dreams come true. And so I'm devastated that I lost him, but I am so grateful that I had him and that he's mine. Well, I honor you. I honor your motherhood. I honor you and your partner as parents. I honor Jacob and all of the pain and and the joy. I honor all of your story. And I'm so grateful for the ways that, that you have impacted and inspired me oh, as Julian's mom. <laughs> You know, because I'm doing similar work now yes. with facilitating groups with yeah. uh, an organization 
pills. I don't know if you feel this way. I feel like these are gifts from Jacob. Like when I meet somebody like you that I connect to um, so quickly, uh, I feel like Jacob and Julian conspired a little bit to bring us together. And our friendship feels like a gift from my son. And it's just so sweet. And I just love you so much. And I'm so grateful to know you. I feel the same way. (laughs) And I do feel like Julian is bringing me to other (laughs) right people, you know, and, and, and on be, you know, what I want to say is what I know about the TFMR community is it's one of the most silent Mm. groupings of pregnancy and infant loss. And so I, I don't know if our listeners even, you know, unless you've experienced TFMR, most people don't even know about TFMR. Right. And so I just really want to do an a major, huge acknowledgement to you for choosing to be a voice in, in a voiceless space. Yeah. Thank and you. Especially with, um, in a, in a post Roe v. Wade world, which we right. can't even touch on today. Right. right? So, I know. It's a whole nother podcast episode. Yeah. That's something that I feel very strongly about in being authentic. Now I have come to a point where obviously I feel comfortable sharing um, that part of our story openly. And I feel very strongly for that for two reasons. Number one, because I want to help lessen the stigma around it. And I think that our story can do that, but also an equally or more important is I want people to hear my story who maybe in the future will find themselves in a similar position and I want them to start off having the language and already knowing there's a community and there are resources out there for them because I didn't know that and it made the experience so much harder and so I mean equally to you and the work that you're doing and you accepting and helping people who've experienced all kinds of loss and you being supportive to those in the TFMR community is vital and I want people to know before they're ever in our shoes hopefully they never will be but unfortunately some of them will that they're not alone and that there's a community here waiting for them to help bear witness and carry them. Absolutely. And so where can our listeners find you, Jess? The easiest way is on Instagram. Um, my handle is at Jess Van Wine. Um, I'm sure you'll see in the show notes how my last name is spelled. Um, and then if you are interested in participating in a support group um, virtually, uh, you can go to rtzhope.com um, to their registration page and look at all of their support groups. And I'll be listed as the facilitator for the ones that I'm leading. Awesome. Well, we'll leave it there for today. I love you. I I love love Jacob. Thank you for our listeners. This was a big one for us both. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely.